Today, Punk Lives uh, is pleased uh, to be able to speak with um, a bona fide San Diego mover and shaker. Well, shaker anyway. He's been shaking up this town rock and roll styly uh, since 1980 in his first punk rock shows here. And we would be hard-pressed to find anyone more essential to the story of San Diego punk rock than Tim Mays. So we've, one thing, one way we have been kind of kicking things off here on, on, these, on these talks has been um, the pathway into, into music that, that each person has taken, and okay. especially punk rock. I mean, what got you started on, on music? Well, I was, I, I grew up, my parents had records, had a record player. My mom let us join the Columbia Record Club when we were kids. <laughs> ten, 10 LPs for a dollar, plus a free stereo. So she let me and my sisters order the records. And that that a, sounded like a, a good deal. It was a great deal. Yeah. But you had to buy X amount of records exactly. over the next two years yeah. at full retail. But, you know, we didn't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it was the early 60s. We bought uh, Best of Cream, Jimi Hendrix, Smash sure. Hits, uh, Mamas and Papas, Donovan. Uh, I can't remember what else. But we, we got the 10 records, and that was my first introduction. Um, I remember watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan the first time, and that was kind of like, whoa, Iowa. you know. Uh, yeah, me and my sisters just watching it, and my parents coming home, and my dad, make, my stepdad making fun of them with long hair, which in <laughs> retrospect isn't long at all, right? Um, so that was that, and then I moved down to San Diego. Well, I started going to concerts uh, growing up in Barstow. We'd drive down to San Bernardino or L.A. to go see shows. Did you go to high school in Barstow? Yeah, I went to high school in Barstow. Um, there wasn't much to do there. <laughs> Uh, first show I can remember going, uh, first show I went to was Sly and the Family Stone at the Forum in L.A. Uh -huh. And then we'd go down to Swing Auditorium in San Francisco. I saw Led Zeppelin there and Black Sabbath and Grand Funk. And wow. All sorts of cool stuff what there. What year was that? That was early 70s. Yeah. Like 70, 71 maybe. Okay, yeah. Um, moved down to here, San Diego, to go to college. And went to San Diego State and saw a lot of shows in the sports arena at Montezuma Hall, the back door. Um, started going to see punk rock shows up in L.A. in probably 1979. Actually, actually, the first Penetrator show I saw was you guys playing at Glorietta Bay. Oh, uh, right. I remember what year that was. Was that 79, probably? It sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I remember going to that and just, like, being blown away. You know, like, I lived right across the street from the Catamaran uh, with a, a bunch of surfer dudes. And me and one of my neighbors said, let's go down and see this show. And, you know, I think the Knack had recently played at the Catamaran when their record came out, so it was right around 79, oh, probably. Right. And that. so we went down there and saw that, and I was just like, man, this is mind-boggling. I remember a distinct memory of, uh, did you remember Gail, who moved to San Francisco? She was in Tragic Mulatto. Yes. Okay, so I remember Gail there, because she was pretty much unmistakable, even back then, and I didn't know her. But I remember her in the middle of the, the pit, or the crowd, waving a cheese grater around in the air. And I was just like, man, what is this? You know, and I was just like this better rocker that. dude. Yeah. And so I saw that, and then uh, I had a friend that I grew up that with. That some, somehow sounds punk rock. Yeah, it was. It was completely. <laughs> and it was a great show. And it was insane. I mean, the band is right there. Um, started going to see shows in L.A. Uh, with a friend who I'd grown up with in Barstow, who lived in Orange County. And we decided to put on a show. Actually, I put on a couple shows in Barstow. Rock, rock shows, rockers, like rock and roll stuff, with bands from Orange County. Then me and my friend decided to put a show on in Los Angeles. And 
we went up there and we, we'd go up to the band. We went and saw the plugs and the weirdos. We'd go up to them and ask them if they'd play our show. And they didn't know us from anything, but they were, you know, how much money can you pay us? Oh, $300. Yeah, sure, we'll do it. So it was the plugs, the weirdos, Suburban Lawns, and the Penetrators opened yeah. the show. Was that, so that was your first That was show. my first punk rock show at Basis Hall in Los Angeles. Wow. Um, and it was a huge success and it was great. And then I remember that one too because I kind of worshiped the weirdos. Oh, they were fantastic. The Suburban you know, Lawns and, were amazing. And I love the Suburban yeah, Lawns. Yeah, I mean, they were one of my favorite bands. One of, uh, one of my favorite uh, bands to play with. Yeah. And Sue Tissue. Yeah, she was not incredible. Right. right? <laughs> so right. at that same time, Laura Fraser had started the Skeleton Club down here. And she, I didn't know her, but she heard about my show and got in touch with me somehow and asked if I wanted to be her partner. Uh, she needed money, you know. So yeah. I said, "Well, yeah. What does that mean?" She goes, "Well, like, give me a thousand dollars, and you can be my partner." And I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> so I wrote her a check for a thousand dollars and became a partner at Skeleton Club. And that was in Jan. That was in February of 1980. Yeah. And we lasted. This was the second location on Market Street. Right. We lasted through May, and then got closed down by the police. Exactly. And that was that. So that's how I got started. Then I started managing the unknowns and then putting on shows at uh, Spirit Club and well, so on and so forth. Well, let me ask you this. Forth. How did we get on that first bill? I had seen you guys at Glorietta Bay. Uh, I subsequently ran into Gary at a show at the Palladium. Uh -huh. Sometime after that, uh, it was a LA kind of power pop punk show, The Zippers, oh, 2020, right. uh, The Pop maybe couple other bands that were the I last probably them, yeah. and I ran into Gary in the bathroom I did he, we didn't know each other but I went up and started talking to him and you know said some nice things and so you say nice things to Gary he's gonna sure. respond <laughs> you know right. and so I, I kind of just became acquaintances then and then you know I guess I was seeing other shows down here at the time maybe I don't remember but right. I just you know you guys were on the radio at the time probably right, right. we were so I'm like yeah let's have Jim the penetrators play and and then others eventually. Yeah, the modern world. Show. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. So that's that's how that came in. All those bands, the three LA bands we put on that show, were just we would go see them and talk to them. And I remember we went to the suburban lawns. All lived in a warehouse in Long Beach, and so really? me and my friend went over there to you know I, I, that wasn't a contract, but just to firm up the deal. And they're living in this weird loft warehouse space in Long Beach, and you know here we're like, well, we're at suburban lawns house in Long Beach, you know, and we. Uh, promoted that show by going up to LA a lot and putting up flyers on telephone poles every weekend and actually went to Rodney's apartment once oh, sure. because he you know for 50 bucks he would plug your show on his radio show and he said well bring by the stuff so we, we go by his house to drop off the flyers and stuff and you know you go in and there's pictures of Brooke Shields all over <laughs> it's, it's, the stories are true but, uh, <laughs> photos and pictures of Brooke Shields and young Scarlet's all you over know, his Rodney place. yeah and Kim Fowley. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, yeah wow. <laughs> I had run-ins with Kim Fowley later working with the Unknowns. Really? Because he decided that all of a sudden he wanted to work with them, and he started coming down. I remember sitting in a booth at the Zebra Club with him, just like we are, but it was the Unknowns, Bruce and Mark, and probably just Bruce and Mark, and Kim Fowley and whoever he was with, and he was talking big. You know how he does. He yeah. talked real big to him. I'm going to do this with you and do that. you got to change this, but you got to do that. And, you know, kind of, I was managing them kind of, but I didn't know what a manager was back then. I was <laughs> basically booking them shows, you know. And so he kind of took them under his wing for a little while and chewed them up and, you know, spit them out. And, that's know. the way, that's, that's his Yeah, completely, yeah. completely. 
Yeah. Yeah, we, uh, well, so were you doing more shows in L.A. than that? I just did that one. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all the one and only. Because I didn't remember that you had done that show. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so that that was interesting to find out. Yeah. So, but, so, then you're involved in the Skeleton Club. Correct. Were you doing... All the shows that you were doing then at the Skeleton Club. Yeah, that's uh, that's what we we just did stuff there. I would book some of it. Laura would book some of it. I started making contacts with people in L.A. Like I really wanted to get the uh, which band is it? I was really fixated on getting down here. Oh, I want to get the uh, the Go Go's down here. And so the Go Go's and the Alley Cats were both managed by. Mar- Milton Burrell's son, who's named Marshall Burrell, <laughs> really? and he booked the whiskey as well. And so I remember somehow finagling his number from somebody and contacting him, and he goes, well, we can do a, a combination Alley Cats and Go-Go show. And so we booked the two of them to play Skeleton Club. And then X was another band that I really, really wanted to get down there, because right. I had seen them up at uh, Hope Street Hall in L.A. It was L.A., it was, the <laughs> it was X, The Germs, and Suburban Lawn. Amazing show. And their manager, they, they had a guy managing him, and he had an assistant. And, um, I got to know him, and, you know, standing there watching the show with him, watching the germs play and the stage collapsing while the germs are trying to play their oh, set. Oh, I remember that story. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I started talking to him. I said, hey, I really want to bring San Diego. So we, we ended up booking him at Skeleton Club with, uh, uh, I can't even remember who opened. They played one night at Lions Club with Renee and Steve, and then one night at Skeleton Club. And so those were the bands that I really liked, and I was stoked that I was able to get them down here. And then when Skeleton Club closed, and I started, I'd made a bunch of contacts, so I started doing shows at the Spirit Club, then came across the Lions Club as well. Did some things there with, uh, I ended up uh, striking up a partnership with Dead or Alive which was Mark Rude and Mickey Williams and right. Sherry. Right. And kind of became Cotton, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Became, yeah, yeah, yeah. became part of their, their crew. And that's where we did the Lions Club. We started, did a few Adams Avenue shows. I can remember the first time going over. They all lived at the Boys Club up in Kearney Mesa. Oh, right, right. Mickey and Chuck and, and uh, uh, Jeff Mummert and Al Brown all lived there. Maybe Tim Pinnell, too. And so I had to go to a meeting with these guys. And I, in my mind, working with Laura Fraser at the Skeleton Club, Mark Rude was pretty much a troublemaker down there. Sure. Her and him did not get along at all. So I, I, she not only became her partner, but I lived with her too. So I kind of was on that side of the fence as far as Mark Rude goes. But I had to go have a meeting with Mark and Mickey and Sherry to kind of initiate me into the, into the Dead or Alive crew. And I just met those guys, and it was like everything was great, and we all agreed to work together. Yeah. And uh, after a while, those guys all kind of lost interest in the day-to-day or in trying to put on shows all the time. So it just finally became Tim Bates Presents. Uh-huh. You know, right, it was right. me just doing my stuff. And Sherry was still involved. She was running the door and, and getting permits for uh-huh. me because uh-huh. okay. she had it wired as far as the deal, deal going downtown to get permits. Uh, it was a process. Yeah, it was a process, and it took time, and you had to plan ahead. Yeah. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Um, there was one instance, though, where she did not get the permits in time, and it was a Thanksgiving weekend, probably 82. I had Sam Hain booked at the Fairmount Hall and Motorhead booked at uh, Adams Avenue. Oh, wow. The Thanksgiving weekend, so 
you know, short week. They closed on Wednesday. They didn't get pulled in time. Friday show, Sam Hain, the cops come in and shut it so before it even starts. And it's not going to be a show here tonight. You don't have a permit. And tomorrow night's show at the Adams Avenue is not happening either. And so that was, she, she kind of dropped the ball there and then kind of just lost interest too. Uh -huh. you know, everybody grew up, grew out of it, did whatever they were doing. So, so that kind of put a damper on things. So then I had to start doing it myself. And, you know, I learned, to, learned how to do it and stuff. But that was a pretty traumatic weekend. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, Mark Rude comes up in every, every interview so far. Obviously, key to San Diego punk culture. Big time. Big time. Um, funny thing, though, and and I first meet him as, you know, friends of no one. Yes. And uh, Tony Chuko, Rick Fortune, Mark Root. Who else? Was there another Tony, person? Terry Marine. Terry Marine, yeah. Scum. Right. Okay, yeah, right, right, right. Uh, but so studied troublemaking. Yes. They would... You know, and I remember one time. Hatchet prop. Yeah, right? Right. I, re I remember one time uh, me and Chris Sullivan and probably Gary uh, were at this party over on Washington, just off Washington, probably first. And we're at the house, and Mark and Terry and I think uh, Arturo show up, and we're not going to let them in. And we just blocked the front door and they you know they, you know was, yeah 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 so it's really weird because all right paul sansone our manager and K the first kgb chicken first kgb chicken came out here with mark right yeah they, they went to, they, went to they, they went to they lived in the same town in in new york i think they went to high school together right so he showed me some pictures that mark had drawn in high school and they were like elves on toadstools smoking, you know, <laughs> real hippie stuff. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> so, which totally belied the guy that I knew. Right, right. But uh, and then later that kind of, you know, that studied effect sort of went to the side and he was just a sweet guy. Yeah, I mean, I got to know him later on too and, you know, behind all the bluster, yeah, there was a, a true nice individual there, smart. Yeah. Talented, right? Um, who you know, later years after he moved away, I would see him down here once in a while. Yeah, he did a lot of drawing and a lot of art and stuff. Right. But yeah. but yeah, back then at first he was trouble. I mean, Loose Gun would go steal the microphone right. on stage, right. the Skeleton <laughs> Club, just for shits and giggles. Right. Uh, a funny story. I was we were in Boston about a year ago. We had lunch with Loose Gun. Oh yeah. And uh, you know he's a full on MAGA guy now, full on right. Trump supporter. Right. I know. I know. Uh, and full he, on. I get into it on Facebook. Yeah, we once did, in a while. I do too. We <laughs> didn't have any conversations about it while we had lunch. Oh, we went cool. to some little seafood joint that he knew and it was great to see him you know he's working and he has a girlfriend and he has a kid and he's got his little thing going well on. And, he, and he's he's got a funny kind of wit too about, oh, big time. about yeah about all of that when he chimes in to support trump yeah <laughs> so it's almost self-deprecating but it's not because he's real serious about it you so, know what i mean yeah it's all good you know yeah uh, right exactly but uh, well so do you, um, oh, I just talked to Harold G. And, oh. and, because uh, I, he's got some of the great photos from parties. Oh, yeah. And, and I've, I've had a couple that I bought back then. Yeah. And he, he, we're going to use some of those. Yeah. In, good in stuff. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, so, so the, uh, 
Skeleton Club ends. Now you're having to do shows at places that you can book. Wherever, yeah. Yeah. yeah so you, how was that working? Well, you'd go, you know, Spirit Club was easy because it was always there. You didn't have to get a permit. You didn't have to do anything. Well, all right. But it was 21 and up. Tell me this, though. Yeah. Tell me this. Um, what I remember was when punk rock got to the spirit, the police harassment just did not happen there. No, it didn't happen there because I don't know why. I mean, I guess because it was more of an established place. It had been there for a while. It was licensed. But yeah. I don't know. I, I'm not sure. But yeah, there is a whole thing where, you know, so at the hall shows, we'd, we'd go find a hall that was available on the night you needed. And so the halls we used back then, Adams Avenue was the primary one, uh, North Park Lions Club, Fairmount Hall, um, Carpenters Hall, uh -huh. later right, on right. Wabash, Wabash Hall, right. Jackie Robinson Y. Did you do the Gene Loves Jezebel Yes, show? I did that show there. So that's one of the few shows I went to. At, at Wabash. Wabash yeah. was a tough place because uh, I, I remember if you the place held like 500 people right but if you had 500 people in there the walls would start sweating <laughs> you know, the humidity in that room you'd walk up those stairs and halfway up you'd enter a cloud chamber and it was just condensation <laughs> on the walls it was so hot in there but we did a bunch of shows there i did some really great bad brains played there oh, right uh, uh bad religion played there social distortion but those were the halls you used and you know usually one of them would be available on the night you needed and You'd got to go. You go take out a permit, start the paperwork. It took twenty to thirty days to get. You know, hire a PA company, come in and bring the PA in and, and advertise it, and run ads in the reader, make flyers and posters. Go to We Copy over on Sixth Avenue, and make flyers, and go put them all around, and take them to the record stores. Yeah. Um, but you always had to deal with neighbors and cops. Most of those, a lot of those things were in residential neighborhoods, sure. so you'd get complaints, and those complaints would draw the police and the police would harass people and you know the skeleton club got shut down just because we were two blocks from the police department and they every night when they went out on their rounds when they came back in there's a bunch of punk rockers standing out on the corner i remember drinking and you know them showing up in riot squad force so yeah eight cruisers out front yeah and nothing going on yeah just people out sm smoking cigarettes yeah. you know yeah so i remember <coughs> this one this one uh this one kid was out there smoking and you know, this one cop, there was like eight of them standing there on the sidewalk. Hey, you, come over here. And, uh, you know, and the kid starts walking over and put out that cigarette. And so the kid kind of snobbly mm -hmm. flicks it down, sparks fly on the sidewalk. So they just jump him at that point and, the, and beat him bloody, rested him, threw him in the cop car. I, I was standing right there. I watched that. I'm a witness to the that was exactly what happened and I heard later that he was arrested for resisting arrest was that John Moore I, I don't know who it was <coughs> maybe there was a guy named John Moore back then who was around he was a he's not a typical punk rocker but more of the people were more arty type people than there wasn't a lot there were no crusty punks so or there was like a bunch that. of that uh, yeah early on yeah and yeah. those people sort of receded when you know, once it got more hardcore and stuff it got those people I kinda receded in those yeah days. exactly yeah I was only there because I was doing the show right <laughs> you know I, I wish I could have receded in time right but yeah I remember an incident with John Moore outside the skeleton club where he got arrested for something benign and it might have been the same thing it's it yeah sure very well could have been it's that story so well yeah so 
Is that why you uh, started looking for a place of your own? Well, I never had a place of my own for doing shows until, I mean... I mean, Pink Panther wasn't quite it, We didn't it? do shows there. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, that was 86. So by, <coughs> by, you know, 83, 84, the skinhead thing started going, getting really gnarly, bands getting beat up. And, yeah. you know, the security people that we had to hire by law were scared to intervene with the skinheads. They didn't want to get beat up. Sure. I didn't want to get beat up. Right. And so after a certain point, I, I kind of started losing interest in the whole thing. And um, the uh, we opened the Pink Panther in 86, Peter, Peter English and Bob Bennett and myself. But it, there was no shows there. It was just yeah. a jukebox and a bar, and it was great. Stepped away from the whole thing for a while. Sure. Other people came up in the, and started kept doing shows, you know, I mostly at the Y. A, a, a Valentine's Day show for you all slow music. At the skeleton, at the, at Panther? the Pink, Pink Panther. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great. We could do things like that, you know. Bart yeah. Blackstone with DJ. Uh, yeah. Dennis and Steve, uh, all sorts of people, and with theme nights, and uh -huh, right. and then you know we. Uh, I still did a few shows back then. I did a couple uh, up at the Shea Cafe and a couple at Carpenter's Hall, but it was kind of winding down, and then uh, the Casbah first location up the street, which was called the Harp and Shamrock, was an Irish pub. I was trying to remember the name, the original name of yeah, the place. Yeah, yeah. And so it came up for sale, and we bought it, and Peter's idea was make it kind of like an English pub, open with windows and daylight, and we'd have light entertainment, you know, like, I think we had Robbie Kane and Swinging Gates and uh -huh. Forbidden Pigs and CLA and, and stuff like that that was more kind of not punk rock. <laughs> Yeah. And so that's how we opened, and we had an espresso machine. It was a whole different world, you know. But just like we, once they got us out, they pulled us back in. <laughs> and I started getting calls from people who wanted to book their bands. Yeah. Because the only other club in town that was a spirit club that was doing anything right. touring band-wise. And Harlan Schiffman was doing all his shows at Spirit Club then. He and I had become partners during the last part of the Adams Avenue days because he wanted somewhere to put some money, so to speak, if you get my drift. Um, sure. So he became partners. He kind of learned a little bit, so he kept doing it. But uh, once we opened, he became a partner at Casbah and started booking all the shows over there. And that's how Nirvana played there. And oh, wow. The Smashing Pumpkins and Primus and stuff like that. And so we started getting calls again from booking agents. A lot of new booking agents had just sprouted up in the years during that time that were booking newer bands like the Seattle stuff and some stuff in Chicago sure. like Urge Overkill and the Digits and then uh, all the stuff in Seattle and all over the place. So we started working with these new booking agents that were sending young bands out and they were playing the Casbah. So was there kind of a an evolution in the national uh, music scene uh, that, because I know there was a point where it was kind of old school A&R people from the record companies and that kind of gave way to and it was sometime, you know, during the new wave period that these young hipster, uh, well, yeah, yeah, for sure, and and booking agencies and yeah. managers, like you go back to the the Copeland family, which Stuart Copeland from the Fleece, right. Miles Copeland was the father, and he uh, had uh, IRS Records, which signed a lot of those bands back then, right? right? And then there was their booking agent called FBI, so it's all government authority named entities, That's funny. IRS records, 
FBI booking <laughs> and the police, which is the band. So one of the brothers, the, one of the sons ran the booking agent. They booked all the really cool bands back then that I booked. And that's I met up with them and a few other booking agents in New York that were doing punk rock bands at the time and bringing bands over from England like Jesus and Mary Chain or Sex Gang Children or, you know, what have you back then. So, and they were all just starting out too. And so I kind of worked with, I still work with some of them today, like 30, 35 years later, oddly enough. But, so there was a whole new breed of people booking smaller, younger bands that were signed on newer labels. And we started tapping into that. Sure, and, sure. Well, uh, I mean, that goes into the 90s. Um, and then, and it was kind of a, I don't know, would you call it a revival or just the next wave of San Diego punk rock with rock and Yeah, yeah, we were right, we were point, we were right there, you know, I mean, because none of those, those bands were all probably just starting or in different form, like Inch, Stymie was in House of Suffering, and then Rocket, and Pitchfork preceded them, and Fishwife was around, right. and, and they started, they'd mainly been playing house parties and stuff, and maybe the occasional iguana show or maybe the occasional spirit show. Did you show, do any Mexican shows? No, Harlan did all those. Yeah. Yeah. And they were playing at Shea Cafe a lot back then. So yeah. they started playing at the Casbah and became good friends with all those people and all those bands. And now, and as the record labels started showing interest in all that in the early 90s after Nirvana hit big, we were right there and that was where they all played. And it was like every night, you know, yeah. I mean, it was, it was crazy. And, uh, we just got right back into it, you know. Yeah, and that was that was a pretty active period. I yeah. remember because I was um, that's when I started writing for Hypno Magazine. It was right in there, and I actually got to interview a bunch of those bands as right, well. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, so that was a um, that was a big part of uh, the recent thirty-year reunion here. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, was you know a lot of those going back to those bands. That yeah, a lot of them had you know we tried to get some together that physically couldn't do it but yeah. bands that you know had been with us since day one whether national or or well, mostly regional because January nobody's on tour right you know but yeah that, that was the whole legacy of what built what we do today you know so I remember <coughs> so I was working down at the strip club and this place was the loading zone are you sure this was the loading zone or was that where the reader was this was bulk it was club then it was bulk it was bulk bulk Ah, uh, yes. You know why I know that is because when we so, but okay, am I, well, and I, am I wrong? It was a rough, rough trade. Oh, bulk, yeah, but yeah, bulk. It says bulk. it all. <laughs> That's right. B U L C. So, huh? There was a there's a Loading pulley out zone. on the patio. Yeah, <laughs> still there. Like somebody was getting hoisted. <laughs> well, yeah, I'd, I'd leave. Uh, I'd leave the club. At, you know, at two thirty in in the morning, and they're pouring out with the leather chaps with no butts and and uh, the hat. And that, and I can remember at the old Casbah seeing. Standing out front, seeing right. guys walk down in the leather chaps, <laughs> right. and they'd stop in there like, no, that's down the street a couple blocks. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. So that was, I, yeah, that was great. I never came in. I didn't either. I, <laughs> I drove by this place for four years while we were up there every day on my way home. And, you know, once in a while, that patio door would be open and look in and try and see what's going on there. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I never ventured in, and it became, a, this came up for sale. We, we were outgrowing the other place, and uh, same guy who sold us that that business approached us about buying this, and we came in and looked at it. And we're like, "Yeah, this is oh, genius." Yeah, yeah. The, the selling final selling point was there was a bathroom in the office, <laughs> a private bathroom. <laughs> we're like, "We'll take it." 
Ah, uh, yeah, right. Uh, well, definitely so much better. I mean, the setup. Yeah, the ideal. Yeah, and, and this it, was this was proven to be. Yeah, and when you could still smoke inside. So once that law passed, we had the patio. It was like perfect. Yeah, there's no looking back. Um, going back to those early punk rock days, though, back in the 80s. Yeah. If I may steer the conversation in that no, direction. No, right, that's kind of where we're at. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. I digress here, right? Um, <laughs> it was a very, I, I got to know uh, Bob Bennett early on through Laura. Laura, like Laura and then Meryl and Golnora. Right. I got to know them really good. Then I knew Bob and Chris Lee and that whole group of people. That, that's who I hung Remember around Pat with. Lee? I remember Pat Luby very well. Right, Jay Johnson and Pat Luby over in Old Town. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Sitting in his parties. tiny living room. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. I remember one time getting a call. Well, Jay Johnson got a call from somebody who was there. Maybe it was Pat called Jay because they were good friends. Yeah. And he said, you know, David Bowie's sitting in my living room, you know, like, well, what, what, you didn't get us an invite, you know, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that went down, and yeah. Michael Page, Michael you know, Page. played with Iggy, yeah, yeah, I w went down there one time when Michael Page was there with Iggy, uh-huh, yeah. yeah, yeah, but there was, so there was a whole, and that's the people, like, as opposed to the hardcore group and the skinhead people, those are the people who I first met, and were, were the people that were my peers and, and friends, and, a lot you know, of them is who Harold has photos of. Exactly. I've got a f I was at all those parties back then, yeah. down at the pawn shop gallery or yeah. wherever, you know, just all cool old black and white stuff. Yeah. But uh, Harold G was a big part of it. He used to throw those rent parties. Yep. Right? They charged yep. $3 to help him pay his rent. <laughs> What was his? He had the, the, Z. the party paper. The party the paper. Yeah. yeah. You were stoked if your photo was in there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> But yeah, so that was the, and much like when you hear about or you read about the early punk rock scene in L.A., it was the same type of thing where a certain group of people like that who were arty minded and, and, you know, liked good music and sprang from the roots of David Bowie and, and T-Rex and you know, Mama Hoople and we'll before that Led Zeppelin and, yeah, and Rolling yeah. Stones. And Velvet Underground. Yeah, exactly. All that, that, there's, yeah. A, there's a line that goes right through there. And that's the thing that in all these different cities, I think that's a through line for most people. I think that's absolutely yeah. true. Um, it's, uh, well, one thing that was kind of key to me, and I was going to L.A. because from 77 to well into 78, there was nothing happening in so Right, right. When was that first show at Abbey Road? 78? <sighs> I, I wish I knew. Um, I just well, saw it was the two at, at, at Adams Avenue that were before. Oh, was it? Okay. Adams Avenue with the Dills, the Zeros, and the Hitmakers. Okay. And then there is the Zeros and the Hitmakers and the Penetrators. Gotcha. Uh, Penetrators opening for okay. that one. And then, uh, you know, Tom Griswold and Michael Toombs started doing the ones over there at, uh, at Abbey Road. And that was great because now I don't have to drive up to LA anymore to see. The weirdos, or X, or non. I just, you know, that was a thrilling show, um, real eye opener. I think they played the Skeleton Club one time, but I may be wrong. Non. I do have the seven-inch single that has two holes. Yep. <laughs> nice Knife ladder, ladder and, <laughs> mo and mode of infection. Yes, yes. With a roto guitar. And which <laughs> it's inf infinitely variable. Yes, completely. <laughs> and there's there's three, uh, eight eight infinity tracks, 
And oh, really? I didn't, I didn't realize that. Them. Yeah. I just don't. Pull keep, it out. I, I, I do. <laughs> and, uh, and you'd play it at any speed, any volume, any hole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Genius. Yeah. But at any rate. Um, so, the Go-Go's. We played with the Go-Go's in Mugu-Hay Gardens. Okay. They opened. Uh-huh. And then it was a band called X-Ray Ted. And then it was us. And then it was Dead Kennedys. Uh, headline. But the Go-Go's could barely play their instruments. I believe it. Barely. They were so cute, so charming, and fun to watch. Didn't matter. But they could, I mean, they could sing it off key. And, uh, I can remember going to see a... This is well before we got to be. See a germ show up at... Out, they were playing some auditorium at UCLA, and this one we'd go up there every weekend to flyer for our show. And we found out about this show. And we were going out there, and Darby's walk. Maybe they weren't germs weren't even playing. It was somebody else, maybe. But Darby's walking around, you know, burning people. <laughs> and right. I remember Belinda Carlisle just re, uh, for some reason it sticks in my mind. She was short. She was kind of chubby back then. Yep, she yep. had really short hair, and she was hanging around with him. And then when they did play the Skeleton Club in '80. The band, I've got pictures of it, and they look, they're so young, and they're so fresh-faced looking. But yeah, they, they couldn't play. It was before they went to England yeah. and met up with the specials and did that Fun whole Boy deal. Fun Boy 3. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, Fun Boy 3, yeah. yeah. Well, specials, yeah, same deal. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. Yeah, it's amazing. And then they be, they hit it big, you know? So, all right. So now there's this, this, um, there's this thing going on. Um, well, was there an instant scene that coalesced around the, the Casbah? Well, we had kind of developed, a, I mean, so when we opened the Pink Panther, Peter had had King's Road. Remember King's Road? Yeah, yeah, So yeah. he did a lot of, we did a lot of great shows there. We did a, a Minor Threat show, a Husker Du show sure. there. But, so he had a, a crowd there. Uh, Bob had a, a crowd from his shop, Razzmatazz, and then I had a, a bunch of friends and people from the shows I'd done. So once we opened Pink Panther, we had a built-in clientele there. Within six months, it was packed every night. So we kind of had that built-in when we opened sure. the Casbah. And like I said, we started with bands like Forbidden Pigs and CLA and the Rugburns and stuff like that, which they had all built-in crowds as well. Then once we tapped into the whole Rocket from the Crypt, Fishwife, No Knife, oh, that was pre-No Knife, Inch, all that. That those bands all had crowds too, so it all kind of became central right there. Right. Yeah. So okay, so this is eighty eight. Eighty nine. Eighty nine. Yeah. Yeah. So nineties, nineties going into <laughs> it. Um, yeah, I uh, I had, I wasn't doing music at the time, um, not so much anyway. Well, we were doing the Purple Hand of Kareem Abdul Jabbar. And we were also doing the that. Love Monsters with Claude. Okay, I, I remember the name. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, remember Claude, of course. Yeah, uh, you know, and it was pretty noisy stuff. Yeah. So uh, not a lot of uh, you know places open to that. But uh, Love Monsters, one of my favorite musical entities that I've been uh -huh. involved with. Uh, and I guess I don't know. We've we've heard that that that. Uh, well, Vivian Bardot, knee Claude Coleman, right, right, uh, has died. Um, 
Lynn Savage, who was in uh, Love Monsters with us, uh, told Jeff Matson that that she had heard somebody, and he died in Pasadena. So I don't know. I, I'd like to get better confirmation on that. Maybe somebody. Last time I saw forward. Claude, he had become a woman. It was here. It was right right after we moved into this location. So. Well, 94, uh, 95 probably? Yeah. Um, do you remember a Crash Worship show in which Vivian we only Bardo did, we only did the one. It? Oh, I didn't remember the opener. I just remember the, the, they only did one show here, and it was epic. It was one of the most epic shows ever here. I've got some photographs of that. Really? Show. Yeah. I was yeah. behind the bar because I didn't want to be out in the crowd. <laughs> the smoke was so thick you couldn't see from where I was behind the bar. You had to squeegee the, the place down Oh, we, well, right? it was this much water right. and, and debris. <laughs> and the one caveat we had made before the start of the show was no fire. <laughs> you know, no fire, whatever you do. do well, at the very end, at the very end, flash powder, boom. And of course, <laughs> this giant flame shot up and, you know, rolled across the ceiling because the ceiling's so low. And then, yeah, we had to squeegee everything out for like an hour after the show. Yeah. It was an amazing show, though. Amazing show. They did. They put on uh, like nothing I've ever seen before. Did since. you ever go to the show we did with them at the World Beat Center yes, on Easter, I was there. Easter Sunday? He's covered in the mud, and well, they got uh, they had blood. The, the leaders, the, the litters, they brought in girls with topless girls squirting wine and throwing fruit that at people. That was WCPC, wasn't it? World Beat, well, it was the they first did. World Beat Center location, where WC was, but yes, it was World Beat Center yes, already. Yes, and, and My Life with a Thrill Kill Cold, I think, opened for that. Uh, or I don't they remember. opened for My No, Life? Well, they headlined the show. I yeah, can't okay. Remember. But All yeah, right. that was that was another Memory. amazingly epic show. Just Absolutely. Mind-blowing. We were standing out on the sidewalk, me and, me and Bob and Makeda, because she right. ran the place. And yeah. it's Easter Sunday, about 9.30, 10 at night, and the cops come rolling up. How's everything going in here tonight? And we're like, oh, really, really good. And we're praying they don't get out of the car and want to come in and take a look because, you know, it would have been shut down city. And so we stood on the sidewalk engaged the cops for about five minutes. And <laughs> he's okay, have a nice night. Happy Easter. And they drove on. And we're like, oh, my God. A couple minutes later, the, the procession comes out into the parking lot with, a, you know, the whole deal, man. It was pretty, pretty the crazy. The platter exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, they, I've still well, got a great picture again, from was, that show. It was tribal. Yeah. It was oh, big time. It was just like uh, nothing I've ever yeah, seen before yeah, since. I agree. I actually did their first show um, at The Spirit. I was doing a noise show down there called Down There. Uh-huh. And, you know, like twice a month. Um, and uh, they had done some, you know, some parties, this but they had never done a club yet. And so, and Jeff and I were doing things. We'd already, because uh -huh. we were already doing Love Monsters, and then we already, then Jeff and I started Purple, Purple Hand. Hand. Okay. And uh, so, um, so I, he says, I, I got these guys, I've been working with these guys that were called Crash Worship. Uh, I think you want to have them at uh, down there. <laughs> sure, bring them, you know, and yeah, an awesome show. But they didn't have the drums yet. Oh, so, really? That was so a it was huge a very element. different thing. Yeah, yeah very different imagine. thing. They were, uh, you know, Simon and and uh, JXL were, you know, they were doing elect it was weird electronics. Uh huh. And but JXL was definitely uh, getting into his persona already. Yeah, it was fun stuff. They used to drop in on open mic night on Mondays at the old Casbah every once in a while. Really? That was kind of like Bob's domain. He ran that night. And, uh, he we would tell once in a while they would just show up and set up and play, you know? And I think it was pre-heavy drums, obviously, but just some weird shit going on there. 
Bob. We miss Bob. Yeah, big, I sure do. I, you know, I, I knew him early seventies. Because our well, one our our birthday parties, our, oh, our right. birthdays are so close. Yeah. He's the third. I'm the second. Yeah. So we had several birthday parties together uh -huh. at his sixth. Avenue House, beautiful house. Yeah, I remember that house. Yeah, and a friend of mine still lives in that really? house. Really, yeah, Michelle. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so it was kind of weird. He, he was doing. I knew he was doing razzmatazz, and I knew uh, the prop shop people. And right. Yeah. Kinda, he he knew all those folks. And that's and then uh, they used to have the, the skating parties at the Palisades, right? Those were so. Good. Yeah, I never went. And Diane Ackerman was part of that whole right, scene, right? right? Um, <laughs> I uh, I went to those. That was the best party in town. That's what I always heard. Halloween at Palisades. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I uh, I did well with the ladies. At, uh -huh. I'll at, bet you did. <laughs> at those, uh -huh. especially at those. Yeah. Really. You know, gay uh, parties. Yeah, there was a whole gay crew, but you know, there's. Easy pickings. Right, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so I met Bob in like 80, maybe 79. Yeah. And I remember getting invited to a party at his house on 6. I was like, oh man, I've, I've arrived. I made you know? it, yeah. I, yeah, I, mean, it's like <laughs> I became friends with all those folks, Tim Spann and Diane. And I dated Diane for a short time. She lived up on India Street in a beautiful apartment above uh, El Indio. I can tell you some stories. I'll bet you could. That I'm not sure she would appreciate. Yeah, so I'm not I going probably to. got some as well. <laughs> but uh, that whole crew, and then you know him and Christine got married. Yeah. And their wedding was a big deal in, at the I Prado in Balboa Park. That's, I remember. That's where I first met the Paladins. Oh. They really? were the Top Cats when they played at the sure, the thing. Sure. Whitney was just joining the band, and then I became their manager shortly thereafter. Oh, you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. But oh, uh, that whole time, you know, and then. Whitney's another one I miss. Yeah, Whitney was a good guy. I lived yeah. with him for a couple of years. I've still got clothes he gave me. Oh, me too. I mean, <laughs> the guy, I had the, the Blaster's first record on Rolling Rock that it got stolen at a party. I think Gary Raychak stole it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so for years and years, Whitney, Whitney was privy to the whole thing. And finally, he found a copy of it like probably five years before, he, a couple years before he died. And he made a huge point of giving it to a friend of his who knew somebody that I knew so they could pass it on in a chain of command so it wouldn't get pilfered again. And he went way out of his way to get this thing done. And I've still got this record, you know, and it's just like every time I see him, oh, Whitney gave me that. Yeah. He's a yeah, good guy. I was, uh, I was seeing him a lot when he was hanging out with Sue, Sue McCoy, Jimmy, Jimmy Puppy's uh -huh. sister. And uh, yeah, but uh, those guys. And, and once again, Bob, um, so, how often do I sit here? Oh, you were here bar? a lot. Yeah. Talking to Bob. Yeah, yeah. He could uh, spin a tale. Those, those Pittsburgh stories. Yeah, yeah. Mafia. Right, all sorts <laughs> of them. You're like, wait a minute, how old are you, really? Because <laughs> how old were you when you were in Pittsburgh? Yeah, indeed. Well, I don't know. Any observations that you want to make before we end this um, thing? You know, I think... People nowadays, I mean, with the internet and, and music being so immediate, people don't, I, I guess probably don't, can't appreciate what we went through back then trying to find new music, 
so new totally friends to hang around yeah. with who shared like-mindedness and and places to go see the bands and just uh, get to whatever your your ideas are out there and so it was a whole different world I mean you remember walking down the street and people yelling Devo at you because you wore maybe a skinny tie and a suit sure, coat or something sure. had a weird not even a weird haircut I never had a weird haircut <laughs> you know right. but it's just like it was a whole different world and it's it's well, the thing uh, that I really remember, and because I was doing, well, I was doing noise music and even before then, uh -huh. and entirely for myself, thinking there's no one in the world that would be interested <laughs> in hearing anything that like this that I was doing in my bedroom, you know, on a little cassette recorder, and um, and I was actually playing those cassettes for walk-in music because I was doing Eraserhead as a midnight movie oh, okay. at the Guild Theater <laughs> as the projectionist then, well, assistant manager actually. And uh, with Jose Sinatra as okay. the manager, but at any rate, um, I was using that stuff for walk-in music for the Eraserhead, and it seemed really appropriate. Yeah, it sounds like it would be. I, in fact, I met Steve Hitchcock that way. He comes running out of the theater before the movie started, and he's like, "Who's responsible for this music?" And I'm like, "Well, I am." And he goes, "I love it," you know. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's what happened, though, was suddenly this group of people who th thought they were the only ones that could like what they were into and felt really apart or were, you know, made fun of, like you say. Yeah. Suddenly, here's a place that's drawing people like family. Yeah, and like record stores, too, back then. I, mean, I never went to Monty really Rockers, but, you know, the, the off-the-record location out on... Uh, I went to uh, Scratching the Surface. Oh. Frank the, Gutch. Don't even know that one. Frank Gutch was... Uh, in fact, I bought... Well, he turned me on to uh, Perubu there. Um, he was big into Dwight Twilley, and I wasn't so much. But I, I just found a copy of that Dwight Twilley record that has I'm on Fire. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's the single, and I love that song. Right, that uh, uh, Bruce Springsteen did, right? Um, no, that's the Pointer Sisters one. Oh. It's uh, the Dwight Twilley, I forget the name, uh, Telephone Fire, something like that. But I don't know. I don't think Springsteen covered it. Okay. You're thinking of Fire. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a Pointer oh, Sisters right, right. song. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. But at, at any rate, um, Eddie and the Hot Rods, yeah. uh, I was just... Teenage Depression. Buzzcocks, all right there at... at uh, Where was the store at? It was on, uh, it was on Goldfinch between Washington and University. Oh, wow. Right there, right there. And, and I was living in Mission, Mission Hills at the time, and so it was so really walking walk over distance. there. Yeah. I remember frequenting Licorice Pizza in PB when I lived. I lived in Mission Beach. Was going Sue to, working there at the time? Uh, I don't know her, but Larry, who Gary was good friends with. Well, Gary dated oh, Larry's later girlfriend. About. Yeah, There's a big to do about him, that. Right. But he was a guy there, and I'd, I'd go there to Tower back when it was in its heyday, and then off the record and lose. And I bought my first residence record at that Licorice Pizza. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh crazy. <laughs> uh, Third Reich and Roll. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tim. Yeah. That's it? Okay, good. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, love reminiscing. And Me that's too. one of the fun parts of this whole thing. Right. Uh, is, it's all is doing that. And it's all different. You know, it's like reading an oral history where there's different perceptions of s 
singular events that is great because you forget something that yes. oh yeah I forgot about that part of it but there's this part of it that Bring maybe it you forgot back too. to life uh, one more thing I can remember going to a neutrons party they were George. getting evicted <laughs> they were getting evicted from their house I don't I remember lived where, in that house okay I don't remember where it Jimmy. was where was it it was in Mission Valley yeah uh, right well where National University is now. okay yeah. I went to that party with Jay Johnson and maybe Bruce Smith. Do you remember Bruce Smith? Yeah. Yeah. So we went to that party and I remember walking in and there, where a wall was, there was now a new doorway. Yeah, there yeah. They threw just bowling balls. Punched, yeah, just punched out and windows were broken. Yeah. Refrigerator upturned. Well, we were there the for about five we were was it going to be demolished it was going to be oh i didn't know that yeah. see yeah well, that, that's that's a good did. fact that it would have made it a little different because yeah. we walked in there for about 15 minutes like oh, i think we better get out of here <laughs> i saw i wasn't at the party and i didn't live there anymore uh -huh. charlene and I, I had well i i moved in with charlene yeah and up in normal heights okay. and uh but only a couple of months before that you know and uh, yeah jimmy and i lived there for a couple of years Jimmy Puppy, Puppy or Jim Wood? Okay. Jimmy Puppy. No, not Jim Wood. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other story. Whole other story. I guess we'll get into it one day, but not today. I got you see it letters from him quite often. I remember that. Very yeah. interesting reading. Yeah, you you know, and I, I remember he mentioned me in one, and I just wasn't interested. Yeah, like yeah. I never responded to him, but yeah, they were a good read. I'll bet. I, I, you know, this I, guy's a great writer. I actually. edited his book. Uh, uncredited. I never read, a, read the book, but I just remember reading the story of his arrest. The chase <laughs> through Horton Plaza, that whole part. Oh, right. What a great, I mean, I was hanging on the edge of my seat, and I knew the outcome already. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, he stole from me, and he stole from... Yeah, he stole from countless people. Yeah. And, you know, so, well, it was yeah. that. He's where he's supposed to be. Yeah, for sure. Anyway. All righty, dude. Thank you, Is Tim. Cliff showing up now, too? Oh, there's Cliff right back there. I didn't even know you were here. This episode of Punk Lives was produced by Henry Dean Jepson, recorded by David Robles, and I'm your host, James Call.